Uh, Tom Cable is a legendary figure in British Studies, uh, British Studies Seminar. He's been uh, attending this group, uh, I calculate, for 43 years. And so he has some idea of the weekly sessions and what happens here. I just want to point out that he was a Yale undergraduate, and I believe this was the beginning of his uh, uh, strong ideas about English poetry. Uh, he studied, among others, under Harold Bloom. Uh, I also want to mention that it was only recently that General Colin Powell mentioned that it was because that he had memorized Chaucer that he became a four-star general. So I don't know whether Tom had anything to do with this or not. Uh, I do want to read just a brief assessment uh, of his work. Uh, Cable's discussion moves from the rhythms of old English poetry and prose to the poetry of Chaucer. He constantly asks fundamental questions regarding the intentions of the poets. He provides the foundation for a new understanding of the creation and evolution of English versification from the seventh century to the present. I'll only add to that that he's managed to write a book, a textbook on the history of the English language that manages to make money. This is <laughs> uh, and I'll ask James Lowland just to say a word on behalf of the English department. Uh, hi, um, I'm lurking back here because I'm going to have to sneak out early and go out to Windell to try to practice what uh, Tom is preaching uh, about uh, uh, embodying the language of Shakespeare. But uh, uh, it's just uh, an incredible privilege to have, have studied and to have taught in the, the same department uh, as Tom, uh, a world famous uh, scholar and historian of the English language. Um, and also uh, one of the only people who's committed all of Shakespeare's sonnets to memory. Um, and, uh, he's a uh, uh, tremendous reader of uh, poetry from uh, Old English to Middle English to uh, uh, Shakespeare to the present, so uh, you're in for a treat today. Tom. <clears throat> Thanks to both of you for those introductions, e each of which had an element of exaggeration in it. But, uh, James and I uh, used to read uh, Shakespeare on Sunday afternoons with Gareth Morgan. And uh, that, this, is, this is perfect here. Yeah, you, you, yeah right. Uh, and uh, I, have, I have great memories uh, of those readings. George Christian uh, has uh, more handouts if you, don't, if, you, if you need one. And I have even more up here because uh, I think uh, if we're using this uh, new technology, which we're just trying out, you, you see it's ink on paper. Uh, the, the only possible problem is not having enough. And so I've never uh, had too few handouts. My presentation will uh, break into two unequal parts of about 30 minutes and 10 minutes, so that uh, 40 minutes total will leave time for discussion. And if you like comparisons of my experiences with your own as regards uh, poetry, memory, and the embodiment of voices from the past. 
the first part will deal with three poetic traditions. I feel pretty confident about these uh, in chrono chronological order, Beowulf in the 8th century, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight from the 14th century, and Shakespeare's sonnets from the 1590s. My simple question uh, will be how we might recite these poems as we walk along the road and what they do to our bodies or what our bodies do to them. The poems span nine centuries uh, during which the English language changed drastically and so we might expect a different interaction between our bodies and Beowulf and uh, say our bodies and Sonnet 30. The second part will be more speculative and I've never presented it in public uh, or in private uh, and I would be embarrassed to because it might seem loopy uh, except I feel I'm among friends. And the only poet in this part will be Percy Bysshe Shelley but I'll make reference to two women writers who deeply influenced him because they figure crucially in what I'm doing with Percy Shelley. They are Mary Shelley and her mother uh, Mary Wollstonecraft. <clears throat> so let's start with Beowulf. The first excerpt on your handout, the first 11 lines a kind of uh, prologue to the 3,182 lines of the poem. Uh, you also have Seamus Heaney's translation. In the Old English, I imagine you won't recognize many of the words or even their cognates in modern English. The last four words of the excerpt on the first page uh, may be more, more recognizable, especially if I tell you that the first letter uh, in, I'm, I'm looking at the last four words on the first page, uh, the last letter which is called a thorn and is borrowed from the runic uh, alphabet is pronounced as th and the ae digraph that follows is pronounced a as in cat. So the first word is fat, modern English that, and the last four words uh, mean, uh, well, in Old English, that was good kuning, and they mean that was a good king, or as Heaney has it, that was one good king. So it's not an accident that those four words form a clause by themselves. You'll notice that they are separated from the first part of the line by a white space, and in fact all the other lines have a white space in the middle. That's a modern editor's way of indicating that the poem was composed and possibly memorized by using the half line as a unit, not the full line. And that's not the way it appears in the manuscript. My handout was getting long and so what I did was just uh, make copies of a, make a few copies of the first page in uh, Beowulf and I'll just pass these around and uh, they, uh, they look like they're written out in, in prose and that's because vellum was expensive. So, but we know from the rhythm and the meter exactly how to divide uh, that, pr that prose looking piece into poetry. Um, 
the numbers in circles in number one on the handout are my own contribution to the study of Anglo-Saxon poetics. Um, they, there are implications to that way of looking at it, but uh, this isn't the appropriate place for the details. I'll simply say that I made the discovery of the eight-part structure of the Anglo-Saxon line while writing my dissertation at UT in 1969. My supervising professor was James Sled, uh, who was a well-known controversial faculty member. Uh, he was furious when he read my draft, and he, he said I was brash. Uh, Ruth Lehman, who was also on the com uh, committee, didn't like it either. So I failed my dissertation defense and I was desperate. Oh <laughs> it's uh, seared into my brain uh, because uh, that summer we were trying to get away to my first job at the University of Illinois. So I rapidly rewrote the dissertation according to their specifications. When I got to Illinois, I published a lot to justify my hypothesis and argument and my former dissertation committee hired me back as an associate professor with tenure three years later. <laughs> In the years since, scholarly opinion has reassured me. Uh, this week I'm reading a proposal <coughs> for Edinburgh University Press on early English poetry, and it uh, takes the original theory in my dissertation and my first book as foundational for everything else in Old English meter and rhythm. Finally, I'll say that, uh, I'll quit talking about myself in a minute, but I will say that during the 1970s and 1980s, my research took a wrong track, uh, and I misspent the middle years of my career collaborating with musicians and musicologists. I was certain that the eight parts of the Anglo-Saxon line had to be set to melodies and chanted to discrete pitches in order to be perceived. Benjamin Bagby of the Ensemble Sequencia, which was then in Cologne, now in Paris, came to Austin and we cooked up a, a performance with tunes and he has performed it ever since at major festivals and venues around the world. For example, a couple of times at Lincoln Center, a one-man full evening performance of Old English with surtitles uh, giving the translation as uh, at the opera. Uh, unfortunately, subsequent research by others forced me to reject the tunes in favor of a more subtle rhythm, which I'll demonstrate here. Bagby continues to sing it the way we worked out in the <laughs> mid-1980s. Uh, this is a, a slower, more stately tempo, and at a walking pace, each step falls on a syllable or a syllable equivalent. Let me say that again because that was a lot there at the end. Uh, each, uh, at a walking pace, each step falls on a single syllable or a syllable equivalent, and a syllable equivalent can be uh, two syllables or three or, or as many as four or five, right? But the foot falls uh, 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 just uh, on uh, 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 four times in each half line, eight times uh, to the line. Uh, so uh, here, it, let me just read you. Heaney's translation uh, so that you won't have to be trying to figure out uh, what it says. So, this is on page two at the top. So, the spiritains in days gone by 
and the kings who ruled them had courage and greatness. We have heard of those princes' heroic campaigns. There was shield, shafson, scourge of many tribes, a wrecker of mead benches, rampaging among foes. This terror of the whole troops had come far. A foundling to start with, he would flourish later on as his powers waxed and his worth was proved. In the end, each clan on the outlying coast beyond the whale road had to yield to him and begin to pay tribute. That was one good king. And, and uh, there might be people who have come in uh, later or sitting at the back, and I should point out that George Christian would be happy to give you a handout, which is, uh, I think, useful uh, when we uh, read this. So if you need one, kind of make yourself known. So that if you're, if you're walking along and thinking about Beowulf, you start out with what way gar da na. See, it's, it's uh, the way I've got those numbers there, the way you do your steps. In yer da gum. Thed kuninga, thremya thunon, who the abalingas, Ellen Emidon. Off shield shaving, shayathana threatun, monigum, mather, mercet. That was good cuning. So one, two, three, four. Uh, Bagby sings it to tunes, which are a little embarrassing, but he gets a good, I mean, a little embarrassing now, but he gets a good audience response. <coughs> the second half of the 14th century saw a flourishing of great poetry in England. Everyone is familiar with Chaucer's Canterbury Tales in London toward the end of the century, and some may know the opening lines of the general prologue by memory. In my history of the English language class, I always assign students to memorize the first 18 lines, uh, as, and as I discovered at lunch, uh, other people have, and as I discovered here, in fact, uh, at lunch was James Scott, I don't know if he's here, uh, but uh, he uh, reminded me that he had taken my uh, history of the English language in 2003, and he had memorized these lines, still knew them. So this happens. Years later, I'll encounter uh, students who will come up to me and began Juan that opera with his sure and so <laughs> uh, James didn't do that. <laughs> uh, many people are also aware, uh, although probably more vaguely, that there was a flourishing of poetry contemporary with Chaucer in the West Midlands in Lancashire, Cheshire, Worcester. For example, Pierce Plowman and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. This poetry uh, used alliteration as Old English did, whereas Chaucer used rhyme, and the rhythm of the line uh, superficially seems to have much in common with the Anglo-Saxon poetry we've just glanced at. So Chaucer looked to French and Italian for his first forms, and the West Midland poets uh, seem to somehow continue to uh, re, uh, either continue the native uh, tradition or to revive it or reinvent it, even though the language had changed considerably during the 12th and 13th centuries, not least because of the Norman conquest. And uh, here again, uh, okay, I'll go ahead and say that. Here again, I made a contribution to the study of medieval poetics. <laughs> During the 1980s, another scholar and I, who was at the University of Virginia, without knowing of the work of the other, discovered that there was a system of counting syllables in Middle English 
but it was quite different from the system of counting in Old English. We met each other for the first time at the 1985 MLA convention where we were on a panel together <clears throat> and rather startlingly for both of us uh, presented our overlapping discoveries uh, <laughs> to a perplexed audience. <laughs> uh, once again, uh, a controversy ensued, which I'll spare you, except to say that uh, it too had a happy ending. Uh, <clears throat> and because of lack of time, I'll only say that there is a precise rhythm to the verse, but it is more cerebral than intuitive, and I still find it a hard rhythm to walk to, as with Beowulf, or to run to, uh, as with uh, Shakespeare. It's, it's, it's a beautiful rhythm, but I can't get it in my body as I can uh, the earlier and later. I find it uh, jerky and stop and go, and, and yet I hope eventually to internalize it in a way <coughs> that makes it <coughs> feel more natural. You've got Marie Boroff's translation. This is when Gawain is riding out into the wilderness to keep his rendezvous with the Green Knight, and it's a beheading game, and, uh, and it could be that Gawain is going to be beheaded when he uh, finds the Green Knight, so it's a pretty scary passage. And not only that, it's cold out there, and the little birds are shivering. <clears throat> uh, by a, this is at the top of page three. By a, a mountain next morning, he makes his way into a forest fastness, fearsome and wild. High hills on either hand with hoar woods below, oaks old and huge by the hundred together. Uh, <clears throat> the hazel and the hawthorn were all intertwined with rough raveled moss that raggedly hung with many birds unblithe upon bare twigs that peep most piteously for pain of the cold. The good knight on Gringolet glides thereunder through many a marsh and mire a man alone. And so this is a, a little more recognizable as English. And uh, the, as I'm sure you have deduced, the X's indicate unstressed syllables and the slash marks indicate stressed syllables. And what I would like to do is for my foot falls to occur on the stress syllables, but I'm not sure. Be a moot on the morn, merrily he readeth, into a forest full day that fairly was wielder. He uh, killeth upon a, uh, well, it's just, I I'm not going to do that. Uh, <laughs> see, he, uh, he uh, hillers upon a chahalva, and hope with its under, of horror oak is full hoga, a hundred together, the hazel and the hawthorn, were hollowed all summoned with rough, ragged moss, rilid, I wear. One thing that happens is that it kind of goes fast in the first half line, and then it puts the brakes on in the second half line. So this too, like Old English, divided into half lines. I, th I think you've had enough of that. I'm watching my time. Just as I've never had too few handouts, I've never run over my time. I've given a paper. <laughs> on to Shakespeare. Many years ago, I realized that I got bored when I went for a three to five mile run by myself, and it would help if I had Shakespeare's company on the hike and bike trail. Uh, so I began memorizing the sonnets by writing them uh, on four by six cards, uh, uh, which I uh, would stick in my pocket. And conveniently, uh, each uh, rule four by six card has 14 lines. So uh, these have uh, been stick. Uh, I'll do maybe uh, 15 to 20 at a time, and 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 I'll get I'll get stuck, uh, and so I'll have to pull them out and take a, a look, and that's why. Uh, although Roger asked me to, uh, I'm not very keen to do 
uh, kind of act like Mr. Memory from Hitchcock's 39 Steps, where you call up <laughs> and, and I act like an idiot several. Uh, but I, well, I have done it before for this group a couple of times, but the problem is uh, I, I get nervous and then I can draw a blank and uh, I feel stand up here humiliated. Uh, but uh, uh, if, if you look at a, at a famous one, Sonnet 30, I'll explain about the icons in a minute. Uh, it's uh, <clears throat> just to get the structure in mind, it has three quatrains rhyming on alternate lines and a closing couplet. Uh, and it's an iambic pentameter, which makes jogging to it very easily, especially, especially if you're a, a slow runner, as I am. The foot, the foot strikes the ground with each beat or each accented syllable. Uh, sadly to recall, during the many years when Wayne Lesher and I ran decades, uh, actually, Wayne pulled me along faster than my normal pace, and it would have made the uh, iambic pentameter uh, too, too rushed. Uh, However, uh, when we ran, we were always busy uh, talking about the department and the university and the national scene, and so uh, the more agitated we got, the faster we ran. Uh, the, uh, I, and I should also say that Tom Noonan here was uh, my original uh, inspiration for running in 1980 in the, the streets of Paris during, the, during the, uh, the winter of 1980 and during the spring in the south of France through, through the vineyards, and so he got Carolyn. Uh, meter uh, running, uh, which I've done ever since. And at that time, Noonan, too, would go along faster than I could go, and that just made Shakespeare too fast. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, you can see the four quatrains. Uh, and uh, uh, there, the icon at, uh, on the last line is just kind of spaced funny. I had to do that. As I said, I'll, I'll explain about the, the dog uh, in a minute. Uh, and then the closing couplet. But uh, here is, uh, okay, I should explain now. If, if you look. Uh, at the bottom of the, on the next page, page six, you, you see a rest versus a fermata versus a cesura. And so there are pauses uh, in poetry, as everyone knows, and the cesura is a, is a very confused term because it refers both to a rest and a, a fermata or a hold. And a rest is, is, is a part of the rhythm that if you have a conductor, the baton keeps moving, whereas a fermata uh, is a hold. And and, uh, and it doesn't count in the, uh, in the time signature as such. And what I've indicated here is that if, uh, if you, uh, okay, so if, if I, here I don't have a dog and I'm running along and it's pretty smooth. When to the sessions of sweet silent thought I summon up remembrance of things past. I sigh the lack of many a thing I sought and with old woes knew well my dear times waste. Then can I drown an eye unused to flow for precious friends hid in death's dateless night. See, see it, that, that uh, foot is hitting about every 600 milliseconds, which uh, recent cognitive uh, studies, science studies have showed is the optimal timing to perceive a beat. Uh, so 
So that works very well. And that's, you might also have noticed that I continued to run, to run when uh, there were no syllables, right? Uh, or sometimes uh, the, the foot would fall on an unstressed syllable, but that's okay because the rhythm is not in the language, it's in the body. And I guess that's the main point I want to make in all of this. The, the embodiment of rhythm. The language has to somehow match up with the internal clock that is always ticking uh, in the brain and that has this optimal periodicity of 600 milliseconds. All right, does that make sense? So uh, iambic pentameter is very good for that if you're able to keep running. Now, uh, you know if you uh, have a dog, uh, the dog might uh, want to stop and survey the scene and smell the flowers and you're just pulling on it and trying to get it to, to go along. And so that's what I've indicated at the end of each quatrain. You're just pulling on this dog, and so that really that it interrupts it. That, that's, that's the equivalent of a fermata, right? Uh, your conductor there. <laughs> your dog is the conductor. And then, let's see, how am I doing? Okay. Uh, I, I've already mentioned uh, cognitive poetics, and you can get a sample of that on page five on the connection of beats to the motor system. Uh, I'm, uh, 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 there's so much that's been written recently. There are, however, this is page five, reasons to suggest that entrainment of auditory neural activity to external rhythms is not sufficient to explain beat perception. One such reason is that pure perception of a musical beat listening in the absence of overt movement strongly engages the motor system, including the regions uh, such as premotor uh, cortex, uh, basal ganglia, and supplementary motor regions, and a bunch of references that are pretty technical. All of this is, uh, is uh, beyond my expertise. I'm just taking the summaries of what uh, people, have, uh, the, the uh, neuroscientists have done. In other words, there's an intimate connection between beat perception and motor functions of the brain, and any theory of beat perception needs to account for this coupling. Musical beat perception and uh, and then under, this is important too, beat perception is predictive, it's not completely passive. You're constructing the beats and predicting what's going to come. Musical beat perception involves perceiving a periodic pulse in spectotemporally complex sound sequences. Listeners often express their perception of the pulse by moving rhythmically in synchrony, as I've been trying to do here, uh, with the pulse uh, via head bob, uh, bobbing, foot tapping, or dance. Uh, informally, the beat is what we, tap our foot to when listening to music in the laboratory. This uh, rhythmic response to music can easily be studied by asking people to tap a finger and blah, blah, blah. So I just give you this to tell you there's been an awful lot that's been studied within the past 15 to 20 years, uh, much more in music than in poetry. And finally, Sonnet 30. I mean, uh, Sonnet 20 in number four. Uh, now, what, this is something I just, dis, uh, as long as I've been writing these, I've just been discovering, I just discovered last uh, month. Of the 154 sonnets, only this one uses feminine rhymes throughout. A feminine rhyme is on two syllables, a stressed syllable and an unstressed syllable. Uh, so you've got, at the bottom of page three, at the end of the line, painted, passion, quainted, and so on, uh, you know, alternate lines. 
quainted fashion, rolling gaze of co controlling. Uh, and uh, a, fem uh, a feminine rhyme is on, uh, so it's on the stress and the unstressed syllable. A masculine rhyme is only on a stressed syllable. Uh, so here's what I realized. If you're jogging to a, a line that ha has feminine rhyme, you have to take a step at the end of the line that doesn't fall on any syllable. And you can kind of visualize that. Uh, a woman's face with na nature's own hand painted, hast thou the master mistress of my passion. Uh, that's where I'd be taking a step. A woman's gentle heart, but not acquainted. So see, you fill in that that's a rest, not, not, not a fermata. And it's part of a rhythmical structure. And I never noticed that. Uh, partly, I guess, as I said, because this is the only, this is the only sonnet that's, that's completely in feminine uh, rhythm. And it so happens that the sonnet is concerned with the meanings of feminine and masculine beyond prosodic usage. It's concerned with female and uh, male. And uh, uh, it's, it's uh, addressing the man and, and, and taking the kind of development of the developmental physiology of the time uh, in the womb and saying uh, embryos start out as one or the other. And, uh, and in this case, uh, nature, uh, a, a, a she with a capital N, so much like this embryo that uh, nature being heterosexual, um, pricked the em embryo out as the sonnet says, put a, put a penis on it. And so you got a lot of um, uh, pun, puns in here, like thing, no thing, thing you know, like um, a thing can refer to both uh, male and uh, female genitals. Uh, and, and I'll let you figure out uh, in the third line at the bottom of page three what the pun is in acquainted, quaint. So, um, uh, so if I can do this right, I'll, I'll have a foot falling at the end of the line. A woman's face with, oh, and, and also that doesn't keep you from having steps uh, that, you, it would be like a player piano if you, if you had to hit a syllable with every step. But there are some places where you have to have a step in order for the rhythm to work. A woman's face with nature's own hand painted, see right there, hast thou the master mistress of my passion. A woman's gentle heart, but not acquainted with shifting changes is false women's passion. See? Because if you didn't do that, you'd have two unstressed syllables coming together, an anapest or a trisyllabic foot, and Shakespeare just doesn't do that. It would undercut the rhyme. A woman's face with nature's own hand painted hast thou. See, you can't do that. The master mistress on my passion a womb. See? Okay. Anybody have any questions about any of that? Because uh, we're coming, coming to a kind of conclusion. Anybody have any questions about, well, I'll ask for questions later, but, and sorry I didn't read all of the, uh, all of the bit. And I had an, another page of, of samples of studies from cognitive science, but Poulter's measure at the bottom of page five is interesting because it was, uh, it's, no, it's no longer in fashion, but it was at this time that the poets were trying to work out a stable system of English rhythm uh, before Spencer and Sidney and certainly before Shakespeare. And so Poulter's measure, I, I love this kind of Edwardian period uh, statement by George Sainsbury, the jog trot of it, the butter woman's rank to market. 
and it's, uh, it's, it's pretty uh, deadening. And it has uh, lines of six beats alternating with lines of seven beats, so it's three and three and then seven. And within, between those three and three, you, you have to have a, 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 a rest, a pause. Now, have I found the way to weep and well my fill? Now, can I end my doleful days and so content my will? The way to weep enough for such as list to well is this to go aboard the ship where pleasure, pleasure beareth sail. So can you hear that? Da, 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 da. Just doing the beats. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, so th that it turns out that this Poulter's measure taps into the hardwiring of mammals for uh, sexual reproduction, and it's especially obvious in uh, rabbits, which uh, reproduce sexually. Rabbits. Uh, so, so rabbits are hardwired to do Poulter's measure, which I don't know if that's related to the to the Easter Bunny or what. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Two, three. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. Yeah. Watch out. Yeah, watch out for the bunnies and watch out for the uh, butter women. Okay, so I'm running about five minutes uh, over what I wanted, but I'm going to move into the shorter part of my talk, uh, and this, this should take only 10 minutes, which may, may seem unrelated to memorization, but it all connects. It involves the internalization of uh, rhythms and other linguistic features, including verbal melodies that someone else has produced. My first experience was, with this was in the 1970s when I became the co-author of Albert Ball's a History of the English Language, which Ball wrote in the 1930s before I was born in a style rather different from my own, and it was the book from which I learned the subject as a graduate student. Uh, however, Ball uh, was a man who spent his whole life in Philadelphia where I had never been, and he had lived there during the first part of the 20th century, which was already history to me. So I had to tune into the style of this guy and weave my sentences in and out of his and the text could not suffer excrescences uh, of my own. It had to be seamless. And there were different ways that I got into, into internalizing his prose. For one thing, I found that I had to give up listening to music while I was reading and writing because the stronger melodies and rhythms of uh, Beethoven or Brahms would just cut across the more subtle verbal melodies. Never since I've had to read and write in silence. I took up yoga and meditation in order to be passive and to uh, receive it, and, uh, and I, 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 got, I got pretty good at becoming an, another voice. Uh, and, uh, and I would send, uh, Ball was in his 80s, and I would send him drafts, and sometimes he would comment 
uh, on the content, wanting to make it more conservative than I'd made it, but he never commented uh, on the style, uh, never made corrections or, uh, at any semicolon or anywhere, so I felt I'd pretty, pretty well internalized it. Uh, which relates, uh, okay, so before we get to Shelley, and I, I just, uh, just wanted to, this is, uh, I probably recall this from Joanna Hitchcock, who told me about it um, at the Christmas party. It's by my, uh, it's, it's, by, it's by John Hollander. It's, uh, it's called Committed to Memory, 100 Best Poems Memorized. Did I recall it from you? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, Hollander was actually the, my teacher as an undergraduate who persu uh, uh, through whom I decided to become uh, an English major because he liked to do a kind of, he was a poet, that was good. He liked to do uh, uh, linguistics, which was, I realized later was kind of amateurish, and he liked music. So he did all, all, these, all these things. So uh, after I took his course, I decided to become an English major. And so in this, uh, he got, he, he has, uh, in his um, introduction, he talks about how uh, it's a lot easier to memorize in meter than otherwise, and a number of questions uh, guided the choosing here. For one thing, the free verse of modernist and later poetry is very much harder to memorize than the accentual verse of nursery rhyme and other popular song, or the accentual syllabic verse, so-called iambic, trochaic, dactylic, and so forth, of literary poetry in English from Chaucer own. And uh, so that, that should be almost self-evident. I can expand on it if you like. But um, the, on the last page, you have the most, uh, uh, the, uh, the beginning of a list of the 500 most popular poems. And, uh, uh, and, and, and all of those are uh, either in, in meter or uh, as in Dover Beach, something very, very close to meter. But here is what, he, what else he says. And this kind of gets to the, the, to the Shelley part. In reciting a poem aloud, you're not like an actor coming to understand and then to feel yourself in a dramatic part, a fictional person. Let me read that again. You're not like that. In reciting a poem aloud, you are not like an actor coming to understand and then to feel yourself in a dramatic uh, part, a fictional person. It's rather that you come to understand and then to be the voice of the poem itself. So, with uh, Shelley and an extension of the idea of the embodiment of another's consciousness, a couple of months ago was the bicentennial of the publication of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which appeared in January 1818. Uh, and in four years, uh, we'll come to the bicentennial of Percy Shelley's death, his drowning uh, in Italy in the Bay of La Ricci. So this year, there's more than the usual amount of attention to the Shelley's in newspaper features and in places like the New Yorker and the Poetry Foundation website. Coincidentally, I began turning uh, my attention to the Shelleys and Byron and their circle of friends in uh, Pisa about a year and a half ago. And what I'm going to describe will probably sound eccentric and pointless, but it's, uh, it's something I've thought about ever since I took a course in uh, graduate school here with Willis Pratt titled Byron and Shelley, and it's my current consuming passion. So here's the deal. Um, when Shelley drowned, he left an incomplete poem titled The Triumph of Life. It ran to 544 lines before it broke off, the last line being, Then what is life? I cried. Uh, I have always thought it would be a great challenge to try to answer Shelley's question by completing his poem. 
two centuries later. Shelley, now is not the most sympathetic poet to work with. Keats would be a lot more pleasant. Shelley uh, never got beyond his male adolescent fantasies and uh, he didn't treat women well. There was much about him that was uh, pathetic, irritating, and downright sordid. Uh, Byron, his close friend, was unspeakable. Uh, in his most depraved period, Byron claimed to have had sex with 200 women in Venice during 18 months in 1817 and 1818, including mothers and daughters. Uh, but back to the point. <laughs> uh, then what is life, I cried, were not actually the last words Shelley wrote. They were the last words as Mary Shelley represented him in the volume of posthumous poems published in 1824. There were four or five additional lines and fragments which Mary Shelley ignored as she began devoting the rest of her life to creating uh, Percy uh, Shelley as she wanted him to be remembered. And her efforts were successful for the 19th century understanding of her husband as uh, ethereal and angelic and not the jerk that he was. Uh, their marriage was in trouble at the time of his death, largely because of Percy Shelley's narcissism, selfishness, and uh, insensitivity, not to mention his many mistresses. Um, however, uh, her preface to the posthumous poems goes on about his admirable qualities. His fearless enthusiasm in the cause which he considered the most sacred upon earth, the improvement of the moral and physical state of mankind. Now the problem is, a person can be so concerned with uh, uh, the state of mankind that they can uh, be uncaring, uh, cruel to the people around them. Uh, so that uh, when she says, no man was ever more devoted than he to the endeavor of making those around him happy, that's just false. Uh, so she wrote, the triumph of life was his last work and was left in so unfinished a state that I arranged it in its present form with great difficulty. Uh, now we have to admire Mary Shelley for her valiant efforts and there may be something, however, of uh, Victor Frankenstein in her creation of a different person after his death. Okay. Uh, there's actually much more of Percy Shelley and Victor Frankenstein which must have been intentional on Mary Shelley's part, but we don't have time for that. Uh, there's also the problem that Mary created her version of uh, Percy Shelley by destroying, uh, the, uh, referring to people is a real problem here because you don't want to be sexist, but it, it can get very confusing if you say just Shelley and you know whether, whether it's Mary. <coughs> Never mind, I'll try to keep it straight. Uh, by destroying the pages of uh, journals and correspondence. And we would find that reprehensible, but it may have been Shelley, Mary Shelley's way of surviving. As for his last poem, uh, it was uh, <clears throat> not only that Mary edited it, but it has been said that her 1826 novel, The Last Man, was her way of completing the triumph of life in prose. Uh, it may be actually her best novel, uh, despite Frankenstein's legendary status and its endurance as a cultural landmark. Uh, it concerns Lionel Verney, the last man living on Earth after a global catastrophe. It's set in the 21st century, and in a scary way it seems very timely. Anyway, I've been working on a conclusion of the triumph of life uh, that is more optimistic, and, and which uh, uh, James Bieri, uh, in his 2008 
uh, very thorough um, <coughs> biography thinks that it would have turned out more optimistic than, than what we have. Writing in Terzarima is slow going. Uh, I, I was hoping to, uh, you know, I've got 50 or 60 lines. I was hoping to get enough to run by Sam Baker before this, but it just, it, I just have to keep working at it. What makes the task even slower going is that I would like it to be <coughs> a conclusion that Shelley could have written from aspects of his own life, not just what a 21st century academic <coughs> would write, even if it grows organically out of what is already there. And there are several themes here that connect with actually what we were talking about at, at, at lunch, whether, whether you, you think about a work uh, in its biographical and historical context or as the old new critics did, uh, separated from its context. And what I would like to do if I finish this is really to have it grow out of Shelley's life. And this is where Mary Wollstonecraft <coughs> comes in. She is part of the historical context of Shelley's poem by way of Rousseau, who figures prominently in the poem and also in Wollstonecraft's vindication of the rights of woman in 1792, which influenced both Mary and Percy uh, Shelley. Uh, that, that their courtship, while uh, Percy Shelley was still married, was at her, partly at her tomb in the St. Pancras uh, churchyard where they would read her work. So Wollstonecraft's attitude um, toward Rousseau and her statements in a vindication uh, uh, and in her letters are so complex and apparently contradictory that I've spent months trying to understand the workings of her mind. And I've copied uh, out uh, many pages in my own handwriting of a vindication of the rights of woman. Uh, Rousseau's idea for the education of girls was to raise them to be coquettes and to be pleasurable to men. Wollstonecraft, as you can imagine, reacted strongly against this philosophy uh, throughout the book, but at the same time her letters showed a very complex attitude toward sex. Uh, her letters to her lover, the American Gilbert Imlay, are passionate as are her letters to her eventual husband at the end of her life, William Godwin, and dis despite what seems her rather austere attempt in a vindication of the rights of woman to deny sexual desire to women, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft was a passionate and highly sexual person. Uh, but uh, her description of the contemporary women around her sounds like what Rousseau uh, would have uh, written or, or, what he, or what he wanted, you know, a swooning coquettes and Jezebels and wantons and silly, simpering, lisping flirts. Uh, and uh, of course, her point is that men are to blame for this. Women are simply reflecting what men are asking them to do. Uh, and uh, she also complains about women novelists writing romances that were essentially producing pornography. Uh, uh, she was hard on women. Uh, but I'll just toss out this idea. I think Mary Wollstonecraft would have been less interested in the political movements, the demonstrations, the campaign for the right to vote, and the legal struggles in the 19th and 20th centuries. She would have supported it, of course, but I think she would have been more interested in looking beyond all this to the kind of cultural changes we have uh, actually seen in, in uh, the United States and Britain during the past six months. Uh, and in any event, this uh, interpretation uh, figures into my continuation of Shelley's poem. It's, uh, it, it's, it's not only uh, my own. I actually I got this idea from uh, uh, a wonderful biography by uh, uh, Lindell, uh, Lindell Garden. And uh, I think, uh, well, I'm, 
I'm out of time. I, I was going to say something about uh, the new criticism at Yale and the thick historical biographical scholarship at UT in the, uh, in the 1960s, um, but that, that might be a little too academic, and uh, I'd be interested in hearing uh, what other people have to say. Anyhow, thanks. <laughs>